0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of my wife, Chaya, whose birthday is today. And on behalf of the entire Parsha podcast family, we wish her a happy and hearty birthday. May she have many happy returns. Now, I want to let the audience know, typically I record on Wednesday or Thursday, but because today, Tuesday, is my wife Chaya's birthday, I rushed to record it today to release it, please God, on her birthday so if it sounds a little bit rushed, a little bit perhaps half-baked, you please forgive me. Now I want to follow up on something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we hired a new rabbi, Rabbi Abrams, and I wanted to fill up his schedule and I made an open offer to the audience, reach out if you want to start with new rabbi, we want to fill up a schedule. Now, thank God the reception for this offer was very enthusiastic, and thank God we are already well underway with making appointments for Rabbi Abrams, and he's studying with a bunch of our listeners and friends, and things are going amazing. We also, because we got a wonderful response from women as well, we also found, and we hired actually a young woman. Shira Rosenblum, who is also now part of our staff, and she's going to study with the women who reach out. And thank God, it's fantastic. But I had a long conversation with the powers that be, and I said, why are we only offering a few slots for Rabbi Abrams and Ms. Rosenblum? We should open up this opportunity for all. Let the floodgates loose. Whoever wants to come study. Study with one of our rabbis. But what if all the slots get filled? You know what? We're going to hire another rabbi and another rabbitson. But it's expensive, they told me. So what? We'll raise the money. So here's the update. We have adopted a no-child-left-behind approach. No-Jew, if you will, left-behind approach. If you want to study with a torch rabbi or a rabbitson, this project, like I said, is open for men and women. We... We'll pledge to try to find one for you. And you know what? If we can't find someone with our existing staff that has some time and availability, we're just going to hire more. This is Torch after all. We'll find a way. We'll make it work out. So email me for more information. If this is something that you're interested in, RabbiWalbetjima.com or, of course, for any other reason, if you want to reach out, questions, comments, anything of that nature, or just to say hi, email me, rebelwithjimble.com. And again, please forgive me if it takes a while to get back to you. I'm always trying to experiment with all kinds of ways to be a little bit more efficient with my emails. So it might take a while, but thank God I try to get back to every single person who reaches out. Now, last week, we tried to set up a little bit of what I call a framework of how the Jewish people left Egypt. You know, these are people that are enslaved for centuries, and they are tormented and oppressed, and they become idolaters. And almost overnight, 10 miraculous plagues, and they are leaving with an outstretched arm, heading to Sinai and off to the races to become the chosen people of the Almighty. This week, I want to kind of fill in this framework by focusing on a specific point, and I think it's a very important point. And that is, I want to examine why did it change? Why did the nation deserve, in what merit did the nation deserve to be saved? This is a people that, of course, they have very glorious pedigree, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're idolaters, and they're behaviorally indistinguishable from their neighbors. And the Almighty does not dispense miracles, rewards to people who are unworthy of those miracles and rewards. So today I want to focus on the question, what did the Jews do or what merit did they have that justified, that warranted them being saved in such wonderful, miraculous fashion? Now, there's a famous Midrash that talks about this, and this is a Midrash that is universally misquoted. And this is found in various places in the Midrash. In Vayikra Rabah, for example, 32.5, the question is posed, why do the Jewish people merit to leave Egypt? And the Midrash tells us, because they didn't change their names. And they didn't change their language. And they didn't speak Lashon Hara, evil talk, gossip. And there was no one amongst them who was immersed in promiscuity. They didn't change their names. Ruvain, Shimon went down, and Ruvain, Shimon, very Jewish, very Hebrew names, went up, left. And they didn't change Ruvain to Rufus, and Shimon to some other name, and Joseph to some other name, and Benjamin to Alexander. They maintained their Jewish names, and that is the first reason why they merited to be saved. And they didn't change the language. When they descended down, Abraham, he spoke in Hebrew. He was called Abraham the Hebrew. And when they left, they left as Hebrews as well. In Genesis, this family, this nation is called the Hebrews. In Exodus, they're still called the Hebrews. They've maintained their language. And that's reason number two, why they merited salvation. And reason number three is they did not speak Lashon Hara. Even though Moshe told the nation That when we leave, we're going to clean house. We're going to plunder this nation and ask them for all the gold and their silver and all their valuables. And the nation knew that for an entire year before it was implemented. And this, of course, would be very incriminating evidence against Moshe. Moshe is coming to clean out the whole city and to steal all their valuables. And there's lots of people who have this damning information against Moshe and none of them reveal it. This is a nation, their flaws notwithstanding, it's a nation that does not speak evil talk against fellow Jews. And that's the third merit why they are saved. And finally, they are not promiscuous. In the book of Leviticus, we read about one Jew who was born of an adulterous affair. And scripture testifies that this is the only Jew, the only Jewish woman who was guilty of the crime of adultery with an Egyptian man. This is the exception to the rule. In general, the nation as a whole was very moral and therefore that's the fourth merit for them to be saved. Now, the Midrash adds that there were two heroes who descended to Egypt and did not sin. Sarah, she descended to Egypt when there was a famine, and she maintained her purity, and did not cohabit with Pharaoh, and as a result of that, all the women were saved, and Joseph, he descended to Egypt, and he too refrained from sinful promiscuity with the wife of Potiphar, and as a result of that, all the males were saved, thus concludes the Midrash. So there's four reasons. They maintained their names, language, did not speak of and we're moral and not promiscuous, and that is why the Jewish people were saved from Egypt. Now, there's an additional clause that's not featured in the Midrashic literature, but is found in the medieval commentaries, and it's almost universally appendage to this Midrash, and that's why I say this Midrash is always misquoted, and that is that the Jewish people did not change their garments, they maintained the distinctive Jewish dress. Now, the question ought to be raised. You know, not speaking of Shonara, it's a great virtue. Preserving your morality, it's a great virtue. What is so special about retaining your Jewish name, your Jewish language, perhaps your Jewish garments? Why is that something so significant and noteworthy that it would justify such a miraculous redemption? In the Exodus, so there's an astonishing midrash. This is Vayetze 17. It says as follows: When the Jewish people left Egypt, they didn't change their names, they didn't change their language, and the angels were singing and proclaiming. Certainly, amongst these people, there are people that are like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they didn't change their names nor their language. Because the nation retained their Jewish values of culture and tradition and language and names, there's something about them that smacks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though this nation is in the dumps, they were idolaters, as we mentioned last week. Even during the splitting of the sea, the angels wondered, why is God saving the Jews and drowning the Egyptians? After all, they are behaviorally indistinguishable. These are idolaters and these are idolaters. Nevertheless, this nation descended from Jacob. They descended from giants and it's been 193 years since Jacob has passed. And they have been subjected to subservient slavery, and were idolaters like the Egyptians. Did any influence of the forefathers remain? Is this nation worth saving? Can the legacy of the forefathers be salvaged? Says the Midrash. They maintained Jewish culture. The names, the language of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob endured in their descendants and that showed, that displayed, that there were still elements of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob within them. They stayed Jewish. There was still something left to save. They retained their core. The kernel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob endured. Yes, it was deeply submerged within them. It was hard to access. It had to be unearthed. But it was still there. Consequently, the nation merited leaving. I want to take this idea to the next level. If we peruse through our parsha, we'll find several more answers to our question as to what merit the Jewish people have that warranted their salvation. In chapter 12, verse 6, it's talking about the requirement for them to guard the Pesach offering. They have to take the sheep that they're going to slaughter on the eve of the Exodus, and they have to guard it for four days. And Rashi asks the question, why do they need to guard it for four days before they slaughter it? The rest of the time, the rest of the Passovers, every year we do a pastoral offering, but there is no such requirement to procure it four days prior, to preserve and guard it four days prior. And Rashi quotes an astonishing Midrash, based upon a verse in Ezekiel, God said, I made a promise, an oath to Abraham that I will redeem his sons, his children, and now is the time for their redemption. But they're empty, they're naked, they're barren, they don't have any mitzvos to occupy themselves with in order that they should merit redemption. And therefore, I'm going to give them two mitzvahs. The mitzvah of the Paschal offering, the blood of the paschal offering, and the mitzvah of circumcision, the blood of the circumcision. And that night, the night of the Exodus, they circumcised themselves. This is the nation in Egypt that only the tribe of Levi maintained circumcision throughout their tenure in Egypt. And now, on the eve of the Exodus, on the eve of the 14th of Nisan, The entire nation does the mitzvah of circumcision, has the blood of circumcision. Moreover, the blood of the pastoral offering, and now the nation can be saved. This is a nation that's immersed in idolatry. And therefore, God says, withdraw from your idols, slaughter your pagan deity, and take the animal that you previously have worshipped alongside your Egyptian compatriots and slaughter it and take that blood and the blood of the sacrifice and the blood of the circumcision, that is your merit to be redeemed. What an amazing Rashi. The Jewish people were destined to be redeemed. After all, God made this promise. But they needed to be occupied with mitzvot in order to be worthy of this redemption. So God gave the mitzvos, But not just any mitzvos. Specifically, the blood of the Passover sheep and the blood of the circumcision. Why specifically these two? Couldn't God have given them, say, the mitzvah of Shabbos and mezuzah, kosher and tefillin? There's lots of options. Why these two? I think this takes us to the next level. There's something special about these two mitzvos that's going to prepare the nation for the Exodus. These two things are about sacrifice. Before you leave, on the eve of moving day, you've been in Egypt now for centuries, and the entire nation is going to leave in Mos. I want a mitzvah, says God of circumcision. I want you to undergo a complicated surgery, a surgery that really you'll have a hard time even processing why you do it right before you leave on your big trip. Think about the trip in general. What an enormous logistical nightmare to pack up and move everyone in the same day, millions of people. And comes along Moses and he makes a proposal the evening beforehand, lets everyone undergo a painful and complicated and debilitating surgery. And the nation says, yes, that is commitment. That is sacrifice. That's the first mitzvah, the mitzvah of the blood of circumcision. Well, what about the other blood? They took the sheep, which was worshipped as a god, by the Egyptians and, of course, by the Jews. If you remember back in the previous Parsha, after Pharaoh had proposed doing the festival in Egypt, Moses responded, how could we slaughter the idol, the deity of Egypt in front of their eyes and they won't stone us? This was a nation that deified these animals and they would avenge anyone who harmed these animals. And like we mentioned, the Jews were also enumerated amongst the idolaters of Egypt. And now the Jews are told, each one of you, buy a sheep and bring it home and tie it to your bed and spend some time with it. Spend a couple days with it and slaughter it. And moreover, I want you to take the blood of the dead animal and smear it on your doorposts for all to see. And then take the sheep And roast it on a spit, showing all the Egyptians, let them see their deity spinning on a rotisserie, the wafting aroma of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of roasting idols permeating the country for all to smell. Moshe tells the nation, God tells the nation, slaughter your gods, lowercase g, slaughter the God of the Egyptians, dissociate yourselves, from these bad habits. Do it publicly. Do it brazenly. Do it fearlessly. And this sacrifice, the blood of circumcision, the other sacrifice of the blood of the paschal offering, this is the ammunition that you need to merit the miracle. You want to be worthy of this miracle? You must do some sacrifice. You must ascend above your natural state to earn it. That's another reason why we are told the nation merited the exodus. And finally, when they arrived at their first stop in Sukkot after they've left Egypt, after they left Ramses, the verse tells us 1239 that they baked the dough that they took out of Egypt because they were banished from Egypt. They were driven out of the land and they couldn't wait and also they didn't make any provisions for their trip. Says Rashi, this is to tell us the merit and the praise of the Jewish people. They didn't say, hey, how can we go out to the wilderness, to the desert without any food, without any provisions? Rather, they believed and they went. And quotes the verse in Jeremiah, I remembered the righteousness and the kindness of your youth, the love of the bride that you went after me in the wilderness the eretz lawa a land that is not sown the nation like we said were comprised of a lot of sinners but they did an act of unparalleled faith they went into the unknown with no provisions all they had was some dough that was not even baked and their reliance on God. The Midrash actually tells us that this matzah that they baked lasted them for a month until the manna started falling on Lag Bomer. So imagine, you picked up your family, you've spent again hundreds of years in Egypt, this is what you know, and now there's been some miracles, and you're being hustled out of Egypt, and you're going to parts unknown, with no food, with no real plan, just reliance on God. Now we'll point out that the Rashi does not directly connect us to the merit of the Jewish people being redeemed, but it is showing us the state of the nation during their redemption. So, in what merit did the Jewish people get saved from Egypt? They maintained their culture, their names, language, perhaps also their clothing. And this made them associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were empty of mitzvos, and that uh undergo the sacrifice, so to speak, of the blood of circumcision and the blood of the paschal offering. And they went into the wilderness, into the unknown, based solely upon their faith and trust in God. Yes, the Jewish people were idolaters and sinners, but there was something remarkable about them. They were distinct. They were different. Their names were different. Their language was different. Perhaps their garments were different as well. And they also had commitment, personal sacrifice for God, and they display complete trust in God, and they forfeited their security, and they went into the unknown. And here's where things get interesting. This is the next level of the idea. The Egyptian experience was already foretold to Abraham. Chapter 15 of Genesis, You should surely know that your children will be foreigners of foreign land, they'll be tormented, they'll be oppressed, they'll be enslaved for 400 years, and afterwards they'll leave with great wealth. And the question we always ask is, wait a minute, why did the Jews, from the very beginning of their nationhood, this is even before Isaac is born, why did they necessarily have to endure hundreds of years of servitude and suffering? Now, in previous years, we suggested one answer, namely that the nation had to become slaves in order to learn how to become subjugated to a master, and then the Exodus is the transfer of this allegiance to God. Last year, we did a podcast on that subject, Parsons of the, Era, the object of exile. Today, I want to suggest a new approach. The founder of our nation was Abraham. Abraham's foundational characteristic, we could argue, was his willingness to be different. What makes Abraham so special? Why is he so unique? The answer is is that he was the one who stood up to the masses. He was the one who questioned the prevailing conventional wisdom. Everyone around him was an idolater. His family, the whole city, the whole country, the whole society, everything, the whole culture reeked with idolatry. And Abraham stood up and rebuffed that way of life. He was willing to be different than all the idolaters that were around him, even when he faced threats to his life. And a great personal peril, he stood up for what he believed. He's called, after all, Abraham the Hebrew, Abraham the Ivory. He was someone who crossed over the river. He crossed over the Rubicon and became this one lone voice of monotheism, calling out, proclaiming the name of God against everyone else. Moreover, he left his home, and he traveled to the unknown. God said to him, go for yourself, lech lecha, to the land that I will show you. Go, trust me, things will work out. Abraham also circumcised himself, Midday, for all to see, even though, according to the Midrash, he faced death threats for doing that. Oh, and by the way, when did Abraham do that? Abraham did that. Abraham's circumcision was on Pesach, on Passover. If you remember that same day, the angels go to Lot, and he's making matzah. Rashi tells us it was Passover. So Abraham displayed self-sacrifice in both the blood of circumcision and in the blood of Passover, in repudiation of idolatry. And thanks to Abraham's valiant faith and commitment, God chose him to be the father of the Almighty's people. Abraham's descendants will complete what he began and bring the world to perfection. But there's one disclaimer. There's one caveat. There's one requirement They will be the Almighty's nation, provided so long as they too demonstrate that they harbor the Abrahamic genes. Abraham was a titan, but he was an individual. For Abraham's movement to be concretized in a nation, they have to, as a nation, at scale, demonstrate that these qualities remain strong within them and don't erode. And therefore, God says, I've chosen you, however, your children, not so fast. Yodoa you should surely know that your children will be tested. How are they going to be tested? They're going to be tested by being forced to retrace your steps. Everything that you did, As an individual, they will have to do as a nation. They're going to be plunged back to the same kind of environment that you came from. They're going to be thrown into the same hostile and foreign waters that you emerged from. Let's see if your greatness, if your uniqueness, if your characteristics are still present in your descendants on a national scale, after a couple of hundred years of being surrounded by the Egyptians, of being surrounded by idolatry. and Therefore, the Egyptian experience is thus a test to see if the nation could withstand all the tremendous pressure to assimilate and acculturate and lose their uniqueness and forfeit their Abrahamic genes, or perhaps Abraham's influence, Is permanently embedded in his descendants. And after 210 years in Egypt, what do we find? We find that the influence of Abraham still courses strongly within his descendants. They're different. He was different. They're different. Abraham was distinct and a loner. The nation follows suit. Abraham was willing to be an outlier, was willing to not go with the flow was willing to resist, was willing to accept the ostracization and the parification of being an outsider. In Egypt, the Jewish people did the same. They maintained their culture. They maintained their differences and distinct identity and culture. They were distinct in language, in names, in dress. The spirit of Abraham of not just yielding to what everyone else tells you to do, The spirit, of course, perpetuated by Isaac and Jacob, still existed strongly within them. Yes, of course, they were idolaters. Yes, they were influenced by the people around them. But there was a shimmering Abrahamic ember still glowing within them. And it was ready to be fanned back to life. It was lying in wait like a sleeping giant, hibernating Fully preserved, fully operational, raring to go. But something needed to awaken that ember and turn it into a fiery torch. And as an aside, I'm actually contractually obligated to make that metaphor. How is this flame brought to life? The nation, God promised he's gonna save the nation. He told his promise to Abraham. There's still a need for some mitzvahs. They're empty. They're naked. How is this flame going to be brought to life? We need some sacrifice. The nation needs to make a determination. They have to make a stark choice. They have to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and risk all and slaughter the idols and splash the blood on the door for all to see. The ember within must be brought out to the surface, must be publicized externally the fire is no longer solely to be captured within, the flames must come out for all to see. And like Abraham before them, they must follow God and forfeit the security of certainty. The Exodus from Egypt perhaps can be described as Lech Redux. God told Abraham, Lech lecha, leave your comfort zone, leave your place of origin, leave your homeland, leave the land of your father. And Abraham did it as an individual. And this time, it's the entire nation leaving their comfort zone, leaving their place of familiarity and going to the unknown to follow God. And Once it's certain for all that the qualities of Abraham— are so thoroughly baked into the bones of the nation, the exodus can happen and the march to Sinai begins. I think this is all a wonderful lesson for us. The defaults are very powerful. Incumbency is very hard to dislodge. Remember an example from a couple of years ago. It used to be that you got an iPhone and you had built in. You had Google Maps, which was the best, still is the best map mapping application. But there was some disagreement between Apple and Google. And Apple says, okay, we're going to start Apple Maps. And if you remember it was a couple of years ago, it was just a dreadful experience because the Apple Maps, they just didn't have all the data and it just wasn't programmed so well. And people were being were driving off cliffs. There were some crazy stories and there was it was just a, a total mayhem we have an objectively inferior product, but you could just go to the App Store and download your Google Maps. But what happened? You buy your new phone and it has a mapping application. There's an incumbent. There's a default setting. And that captured 75% of the market, even though a vastly superior product was one click away. Our natural state is stagnation. Our natural state is to just work with whatever we have, do whatever we're told, abide by whatever we're shown. That's the human condition that is outside of Abraham. Abraham is the innovator. Abraham is the iconoclast. Abraham is the independent thinker. He is someone who's able to stand up for what he believed. Even if the entire world and the entire society and everyone that he knows would ridicule him, would mock that way of life, would threaten his well-being. He was willing to put his life on the line as a result. He was willing to walk into the abyss. He was willing to go through the crucible of the blood of circumcision, of the blood of Passover and with the Egyptian exodus, That proved that those qualities, those Abrahamic genes were bequeathed to us, his descendants. I want to point out that the Midrash says that actually of the entire Jewish population, 80% of them didn't make the cut. 80% of them remained in Egypt. Only 20% of the biological descendants of Abraham actually had what it takes to make it to the next level. To leave Egypt. But we, of course, are part of that 20%. The Abrahamic gene, still today, I would say, exists in his descendants. Is it a surprise thus that so many great scientists and technologists and titans of industry who invent new products, who invent new ways to see the world, who are willing to stand up to the orthodoxy, so to speak, of the incumbency. Where does that come from? We would say that that's Abraham's qualities at play. He was the first, and we still maintain that legacy. Yes, the defaults are strong. Yes, of course, the influences are fierce. But we must remember and never forget that the, at least, ember of Abraham is still within us. We are princes of the Abrahamic legacy. And we can never forget that we're here to do big things. We're here to accomplish great things. Our national mission statement is to perfect the entire world with the kingdom of God. <speaking> It's a pretty tall ardor. Most nations would say, that doesn't really sound so doable. Count me out. But we're not like everyone else. We're willing to be different. We're willing to be distinct. We're willing to endure challenges and maintain our uniqueness. We're willing to even sacrifice a little bit for what we believe. And we're willing to rely on God And go into the unknown because we trust him. We have what it takes. We have the Abrahamic genes within us. You know what? Sometimes they're a little dormant. Sometimes they're not exactly surfaced, but they're there. And via some fanning, we could coax this flame once again back to life. And once the flame of Abraham is burning strong... Nothing stands in our way. Okay, let's begin this week's A and Q. Here's the question. And of course, if you are a new listener, first of all, we welcome you aboard to the Parsha podcast family. It's so wonderful to have you here. But at the end of every Parsha podcast, we have a segment called A and Q Answers and Questions. Instead of questions and answers, the presenter, i.e., me, Rabbi Yachar Volbeck, coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, I'm going to present the audience with a question from this week's Parsha. And if you would like, you can think about it. And if you could come up with an answer, that's wonderful. And you could also email it to me, RabbiWalbajim.com. So here's the question. In our Parsha, we read about the Exodus, of course. And it seems like there is a consistent theme of haste. The matzah has to be made Very quickly, or else it will turn into chametz. It will become leavened bread, disqualified for Passover use. Moshe describes what it's like on the eve of the Exodus. How are you supposed to consume the pastoral offering? Dressed, ready to go, you're wearing your shoes, you're holding your staff, your belt is tightened, and you should eat the Pesach offering, Bechi Pazon, with great haste. This is Pesach. This is the celebration for God. Apparently, haste is a virtue. But is it? You will recall, back in Genesis, that Reuven was criticized for being hasty like water. The same word here that the Torah describes the proper, appropriate approach towards consumption of the Pesach offering, chippazon, that same word is used to criticize Ruvain that he was pahas kamaim he was hasty like water so is haste a good thing or is haste a bad thing we're told many times to be methodical to be calm to be circumspect to be measured to be deliberate have a masunim badin which be deliberate in judgment the blessings of the priests in the book of numbers chapter 6 Verse 23, we're told, Rashi tells us, not to give a blessing, with haste. You have to do it calmly, with intention, with a full heart. So which one is it? Is haste a good thing? Or is haste a bad thing? Or perhaps it can be framed this way. Why with respect to Passover and the Exodus? Why is it different? The rest of the time, we're supposed to do things calmly, with coolness collected and here on Pesach there's a need for speed if you have an answer email me rabbojubba.com last week we asked a question and the question was why is Moshe and Aaron's lineage and genealogy that they come from Yocheved who married Amram and the whole story back to Levi why is that not revealed in Parsha Shmos when they first undertake their mission to the Jewish people Only on the second time do we discover who they are and what their pedigree is. So, of course, the Parashapatist audience did not disappoint, and we got all kinds of wonderful answers. I want to share some of the answers that I received. First of all, I got this idea, and these ideas are related. Moshe and Aaron, they were selected. Why were they selected? So, if you were to ask me now... After I've read where they come from, I would say, well, (laughs) they come from Levi. Levi is the most righteous of the sons of Jacob. But not only that, they come from Kahas, which is the most righteous of the sons of Levi. And they come from Amram. Amram, you know how righteous Amram was? In fact, the Talmud actually says Amram was one of the four people that died only because people have to die. He had no sins. Yocheved is his mother. Such righteous people. Certainly, Moshe and Aaron are the candidates to save the Jewish people. That's what you would say. But the truth is that there was no nepotism in the choice of Moshe and Aaron. They weren't chosen because of their pedigree. They were chosen because of their merit. Leading the Jewish people is not something that you are given by right. It is a meritocracy. And therefore, if you were told about their lineage, their genealogy, their pedigree, when they were introduced, you would say, aha, now I know why they're leading the people. They're leading the people because this is the son of Amram and Yocheved. Of course. They are royalty of the Jewish people. No one else deserves this job. But that's not the truth. The truth is, Moshe and Aaron, independently, regardless of who their family was, they were the best people from the job and that's why they were chosen. And I think there's uh, maybe a side point to that. And that is that we discover, and this is something that we've spoken about a couple of times in the past, saviors of the Jewish people, and certainly people that are part of the pedigree of the saviors of the Jewish people, often actually have quite problematic backgrounds. For example, of course, you know, David, David of course, David mashiba and David is a great-grandson of Ruth. Is he even Jewish or not? Can she convert or not? Judah and Tamar, that's the forebearers of Messiah. Ruth, by the way, comes from Moab. Well, who is Moab? Moab is the son of Lot and his daughter. It seems like leaders of the Jewish people, especially people that are saviors, like Moshe's coming to the Jewish people, Messiah, please God in the future. These are people that almost by design, come from very checkered backgrounds. And therefore, perhaps another reason, again, an adjacent point, another reason why Moshe and Aaron's family life was not told to us at the very beginning is because when a Savior comes, we have to judge on the merits. And we shouldn't investigate too much about their pedigree because you can never tell where salvation may come from. It may look like someone of a pristine background or may look someone like Moses. Moses of course was raised as a prince of Pharaoh could be credibly accused of being a traitor. It may look like King David, King David, someone, is he a mom's Is he a bastard? Is he not a bastard? The Midrash even says that his father, Jesse thought that he was not the legitimate father. Moreover, Rabbi Akiva, he was someone who was leading Jewish people. His father was a convert, not exactly someone you would assume would actually reach the absolute pantheon of great Torah giants. Rabbi Meir, who is essentially the author of the Mishnah because his works were taken to be the basis of the Mishnah, he too descended from some pretty bad folks. Leaders, saviors, great people could come from the most unexpected places, and therefore, Moshe not com, we judge them on the merits. How are they as individuals? We don't investigate too much. It's important to know. We'll get to it, but not at the very beginning. Those are some of the thoughts that we came up with collectively as a family, Parshapatis family. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your week. A fabulous Shabbos. Best regards. And please, God, we will talk next week.